today. Not because we got to the end of Acts, but because it was always in our intention to do Acts in three sections over three different years. Uh, so we will be returning where we left off with Acts uh, probably around about February next year. Um, but we're starting to look at First Thessalonians, even though the first sermon on that is today and it's not actually another three weeks until we return to it. Um, because next week, as Ray announced, we're at, it's called Project Church. They meet at Toowoomba Christian College out at Highfields at uh, 9.30. Um, um, Ed Welch is the guy who is speaking, who is one of the primary guys in Christian Counseling Education Foundation uh, in America. Um, and he's speaking on the fatherhood of God. I'll say it for the last time because it is the last time. On the back table, this is announcement stuff, there is two sign-up sheets, both which today is the last day to put your name and details on it. One is for helping out with the organising for next week's service out at Project Church because we're joining them. We're also joining them not just as attenders but also as helping the event run and work. Uh, particularly their main interest uh, where they're still looking to add up some extra numbers are setting up, which will knock most of you out because that's, as in eliminate you, not <laughs> knock you out. Um, it's at 3.45 this Friday afternoon out at the school, so most, for a lot of you, you'll be working, so you can say, ah, I'm free, I'm out of that one. Um, the other one is helping with the kids' program, and helping with the kids' program is not running the teaching material, all their own people are doing that. All you're doing is helping increase the ratios of adults and kids to keep them under control. So you don't need to prepare anything, um, but that happens during the sermon time. So if you're able to help it with those things, please put your names on there. I will pass the details on to Haley at Project Church, and uh, but I'll also need, I'll email you some details of when to be there for each of those roles. The other one is the Together for the Gospel event. Kevin DeYoung is coming and speaking at Brisbane City Hall on the 25th of November. It's a Sunday night. Um, speaking, and they're hoping to gather about 1,500 Christians across southeast Queensland. Think about how together the gospel can go forth in southeast Queensland and certainly beyond. So the cost for that event is, is $10. It's a Brisbane Town Hall can't remember off the top of my head if it's 7 or 7.30 start, one of those two. Um, but if you want to do that and you want to join us in terms of our group booking, uh, put your name on that form. If you're undecided or you're non-committal, you can register online at a later point so you haven't missed out. just means that you've got to do it yourself. So there's those two. Let's get started. Uh, we're going to open up in prayer because I've got nothing. When I say I've got nothing, I'm not saying I haven't prepared a sermon. I mean to say that Apart from me, uh, apart from God, uh, this time together is of no worthwhile. So we depend upon him and we call upon him now to help us. Heavenly Father, there was a time in all of our lives, if we are Christians, where we recognised our dire need for you and the inadequacy of our own ability to rule our own life and the offence of our sin before you. Lord, we didn't just need you on that one day, we need you every day. Lord, I need you now as we come to talk about and explain the word which you have given to us. Lord, protect me from saying things that were not your intention in giving uh, this passage to us. 
but help us to see that very thing for which you gave it for us. And help us to not only to see it, but to see something more of your beauty and something more of, uh, to actively pursue in obedience to it. So work in me and work in all of us that we might hear and respond rightly to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in, in our household, we have a little bit of a joke. When I say we, it's I. It just sounds better if I make it like I've got a team on board. Sometimes I've been known to refer to Sarah, quite probably unfairly, as being the salesman's dream. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that sometimes when she hears the claims about a product or something that somebody else says, she might take that as being reliable a little more quickly than I would. Now, it's certainly not to the extent that if an infomercial comes on TV that I need to go launching myself towards a remote control and steal a credit card. But I can, on the other hand, say, yes, we do have a shark lift away vacuum cleaner and we do have a Nutribullet. But as you can clearly tell, we have not invested in any of these millions of things to get great rock-hard abs. We had an interesting experience earlier this year to have what we didn't actually know was going to be a product demonstration of a Kirby vacuum cleaner. Now, I can tell you, it's a fantastic vacuum cleaner, which you'd expect it to be at a cost of $4,500. But the method in which they demonstrate it to you is very interesting. Rather than have the bag attached to it and then... tip out and show you what comes into the bag, what they do is they put this cloth filter in between the vacuum and where it would suck into the bag and as the things pass through there, it obviously sticks to that and so they just vacuum a small bit of your carpet, pull out this little disc and it's like, how filthy is your floor? And the, by the end of the demonstration, you've got about 50 of these things laid out across your floor and you think, man, I'm a disgusting pig, look at our house. But I reckon if you somehow you could extract all of the dirt that was in those discs and put it in a pile, it would actually be a very, very tiny amount. But it is effective at making it look like, wow, this is an absolute mess. But when something makes big claims, it's kind of nice to see some evidence for yourself, isn't it? Like if something makes big claims, that I'm a kind of a hesitant kind of person. I kind of look into things uh, pretty carefully, probably a little bit excessive on occasions. But Christianity probably makes bigger claims than anything else in the world, isn't it? The idea that there has been an all-powerful God who was not created by anyone or anything, who has always existed, and every single thing we have in this world came into being just simply by him speaking it into being. That's making him the rightful owner and ruler of everything, including us. But By nature, we don't like someone else telling us how to live our life. We reject him as our ruler. We rightly are subject to his punishment, which he's laid forth before us. But he's not a God who delights in judgment and punishment. In fact, he sends his own son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, into our world to bear our punishment on our behalf so that we don't have to. He then is raised from the dead three days later... All who trust in him, their 
debt against God is completely forgiven. We are reconciled with God. We're given new life. When he returns, we will go to be with him and live with him for eternity. No pain, no death, no suffering, no sin. And in this life, we are his children, even co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you think, oh, yeah, I know all that. I hear it all the time. But if you've never heard that before, they are some massive outlandish claims, aren't they? Now, while you might think Steve's about to give us a whole sermon about the evidence, how we can trust the Bible and how we can know that Jesus and all these things are true, it's not actually the, the direction we're going as a sermon. But if there are issues you would like to look into, is can we trust the Bible? Can we believe the things the Bible says about Jesus to be true? John Dixon has written two great, easy-to-read books, The Doubter's Guide to Jesus and The Doubter's Guide to the Bible, which would be worth looking at. But what we are doing as we look at the book at First Thessalonians is we are looking at one church in ancient Greece within 20 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, a group of people who have come and committed their life to Jesus and this letter is being written within two years of them first coming to faith. So we get opportunity to see what has happened in their life, what effect it is having upon them, what effect it's having upon those who are around them, but also we're seeing something of the things that they are being taught. As I said, we've just concluded our first section going through the book of Acts. And if you had only ever attended Eastgate during that series, you could easily come to the conclusion that perhaps this church is saying that Christianity is all about reaching the lost. That's, that's the one thing that we're all about. Now, it's true to say that all of God's people are God's missionaries to take and proclaim the message of the gospel wherever we go. But that's not all there is to us. What we need to understand is the book of Acts is a historical record of how the gospel first went forward, how people responded and they were saved, and how the church grew. So there's no surprise that that is an emphasis. But when you look through the rest of the New Testament, the majority of it is then church leaders and apostles writing to those early churches to encourage them to grow and become more like Christ and to help them to be better equipped to serve and to follow Jesus. It's not just about bringing people to Christ. Discipleship includes bringing people to know and to trust Christ, but also to to grow, to be equipped, and so they may multiply and pass that on to others. It would be a great mistake of this church and any church to focus exclusively on one or the other. It's never a healthy church that only focuses everything on evangelism. It's never a healthy church that only focuses on building up people inside the church and never thinking outside of the church. And 1 Thessalonians is one of these letters written by the Apostle Paul to an early church written around 49 to 51 AD within two years of these people here in Thessalonica coming to faith. In Acts, we see much of the gospel going to the lost. Now we see, what do the apostles teach them now? What do they encourage them in now to continue to grow as Christians? Now, Paul's a keen traveller. We mentioned earlier on, when he was opposed to Christianity, he travelled happily 190 kilometres to Damascus with the intention of wiping out the church completely. Now we know, as Paul set out his agenda planning to do that, God had other plans. 
where he had an encounter with Jesus Christ on the way and he came to trust Jesus Christ, the very one whom he came to persecute. And it was revealed that he would be God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But to think about Paul and his involvement in Thessalonica in Greece, to give you here a map, this, there's Jerusalem, there's Thessalonica, if you take a direct thing, as if you could fly in those days, 1,500 kilometres. By a driving sense, that's Toowoomba to Melbourne. Or if you're a direct flight, that's Toowoomba to Launceston. This is a time before you got cars, before you got planes, before you got buses, trains and all those things. You think, if you're going to travel that kind of distance, you must think you have something worthwhile taking. I'm not going to walk from here to Launceston just to tell someone about the St Kilda football team and they'd be incredibly disappointed if I did. But that challenges me sometimes when I think about this, that Paul was so passionate about the goodness of the good news of the gospel that he would go to that sort of extent. And it makes me wonder, how much do I value the good news which has been entrusted to us? They often say a good indication of how much you value something is in how you spend your time and how you spend your money. And that brings with it some significant challenges for all of us. Now Thessalonica, as you could see on the map previously, was a major seaport. And as a result, there was a lot of people passing through, a lot of goods passing through. And if there's a lot of movement through that city, then if things change in that city, it will become known and word will readily spread as we see that it does for this church. It wasn't a Jewish area, it was predominantly a Gentile area. It was Greek by nature of its culture, as well as the religions that surrounded it. But it was a church that Paul and Silas encountered, and we're going to have a quick look at Acts chapter 17 at the beginnings of that church. Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So, okay, part of the scattering of the Jews, there, there was actually a synagogue there. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set in the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, that's who Paul was staying with, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down. They have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And they went, and, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So there was their beginnings of how the gospel first came to this city, Paul and Silas. Now, Silas is the Greek version of the Latin name Silvanus. So where you see in the introduction to 1 Thessalonians that this is Paul, Silvanus and Timothy writing, that this is likely Silas who was there in the establishment of the church. 
But we saw that as he proclaimed Christ there, we see many people come to faith and the opponents come to the conclusion, these guys are turning the world upside down. And I think they think they thought they were being offensive in saying that, but wouldn't that be an honour? That our impact, as we proclaim Christ, that people say, these people are turning the world upside down. But as a result of the uproar, Paul and Silas leave. At a later point, Paul sends Timothy to the church uh, to encourage them. And we'll read later on in the book of 1 Thessalonians that Timothy has brought back a report of what's going on there. And this is what Paul is responding to. So that's why it comes from Paul, Silas and Timothy. And we're going to look at the greeting, a church to be thankful for and a reputation that speaks for itself. Now, unlike our letters where we'd like, Dear Church in Thessalonica, Love Jesus, God Bible, from Paul, Silas and Timothy. But the common method, because you're working with scrolls and things, you will start with who you are, Paul, Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. What is unusual about that greeting is that it's the only place in all of the New Testament where people are described as not just being traditionally in Christ, but also in God the Father. As a very early Christian letter, there's a sign, the very close association between God the Father and God the Son. But also the early embracing of Jesus as Lord. That Greek word kurios was the word which was used in the Greek Old Testament for the divine name of God. When Paul says grace and peace to you, which was kind of an adaptation of a common um, Greek greeting, it would just be kind of like greetings. It's a similar word to go from grace. He said it's not just formality, but it's an idea that he desires that the grace and peace of God would abound to them. And by peace, peace, he doesn't mean an absence of trouble, as we kind of use it, but the, the idea of a spiritual wholeness and fullness. And as Paul often did, he launches into prayer for the people. But there's something different about the Thessalonian Philippian churches where he has, seems to have a real abundant joy in what he sees in the church to which he's speaking to. They were a church to be thankful for. You know how sometimes when people use the expression, I'm praying for you, what they really mean is, I like you and I want what is best for you. They often don't actually mean they are praying. But when Paul says, we regularly pray for you, it means that Paul actually prays for them and he does it regularly. He understands that they have come to salvation in Jesus Christ because of the work of God. And so he's coming before giving thanks to God for the changes that he's seen happen in their life because he recognises that for them to grow and to change is only by the power of God also. When you look at all of Paul's prayers, you'll notice one thing. The main thing he prays for other Christians is their spiritual growth. We saw that when we went through the book of Colossians. And so when we think about how we pray on a daily basis, both for ourselves. And for other Christians we're praying for, if we are not regularly praying and bringing people before God who don't know God that they may know God, and praying for the growth of those who do know God, then I suggest we probably need to change something about the nature of our daily prayer life. But here Paul begins by saying, I give thanks to God. Because these things Paul is hearing about in this church, 
are the result of the work of God. He is the one who does the work. He gives thanks to God for doing the work that he's asked them to do. But we also need to encourage the people that we see God doing a work because sometimes we don't see for ourselves the work that God is doing within our own lives. And so Paul gives thanks for three things, all centred on and provided by God. Firstly, he gives thanks for their works of faith. Or some translations have the works which are produced by your faith. Sharing that mindset like James had, that faith, genuine faith, will express itself in works. He gives thanks, secondly, for their labour of love, or their labour which comes out from an attitude of love. It's the language Paul speaks of himself in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, when he talks about his labour to proclaim everyone to Jesus Christ and everyone present everyone mature in Christ. He gives thanks for their steadfastness or endurance which comes from their hope, that because of the hope and certain hope they have in Christ, they can endure, they can persevere because they know the big picture, they know the one in whom they trust. You see, Paul often referred to faith, hope and love, not just because they're nice Christian attitudes, as though they're attitudes to have for attitude's sake, but they are attitudes that correspond with a change of mindset and a change in which the way in which we live. These are things which, for Paul's mind, are evidence that they are genuinely a saved people, chosen and called by God. You know how often we say, you know, we don't really know who has been saved and who hasn't? Sometimes I get challenged by this because there's an occasion here where Paul says he knows. He says, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. From Paul's perspective, as he speaks of this church, he says, I know without doubt there is some evidence that's led me to the absolute certain conclusion that you have been chosen by God. Not only for their Christian character, but in the first part of verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, I know you are God's people. You didn't just believe some certain concepts about Jesus Christ. It came with you with power and with transformation and with the Holy Spirit. It came with full conviction. You were assured of the very things. You live and you cling on to the things which we have brought to you. As a leadership of Eastgate, we're, we're looking at who we are as a church, what are our key convictions, and not just what are our convictions we write on paper, what are the things that we hold nearest and dearest that will define the way in which we live? Because we understand that the things that are your convictions will shape each of your actions. And as the Thessalonians have come with fullness of conviction of the message of the gospel, it has powerfully changed and shaped the lives in which they live. Paul is certain of their being chosen by God because of a powerful display. And he goes on to provide some more examples of what that looks like. But before he talks about more of the changes he's seen in the Thessalonians, he gives a little bit of a defence of himself. It appears that at some point people have made some claims about the ministry of Silas and Paul amongst them, and he wants to set the record straight. But rather than coming up with a case defending himself, 
he is willing to allow his own actions speak for themselves. He says, you know the type of people we were amongst you. Not only do they know so they can write off these things that are being said about them, but it's been spread amongst the Macedonians and Archaeans we see there in verse 9. And because it was a busy seaport, news travels far and wide. But it wasn't just the news about Paul and Silas that's travelling far and wide. There is something about the change in these followers of Jesus in Thessalonica that's part of this evidence they are God's chosen people that has spread, impacted others. They're talking about it everywhere. And there are six things we're going to look at. Firstly, they have become imitators of Paul and of the Lord Jesus. Now, we've spoken a lot this year that, that about Christians in our role. We are to reproduce other followers of Jesus Christ, to cause other people to follow Christ. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I am imitating Christ. One of the powerful changes that's happened in these people is they are now imitating Paul. They see that his following of Christ is desirable, something they want to emulate. Secondly, they've received the word with joy even amidst affliction. Now, you don't tend to choose things knowing that it's going to bring hardship, do you? In the day in which we live today, people will spend big money to avoid any degree of inconvenience. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but we're just going through a Toowoomba winter, and I guarantee a number of you have, have taken cold and flu tablets because you don't want to have the sniffles. But because in the middle of great hardship, they receive the word of the gospel with joy because they know it is far more valuable than the consequences that may come as a result. That speaks powerfully when people choose something knowing it's not going to improve their life condition. It's not going to be an easier path in the immediate sense. Thirdly, they become an example to the Christians in Macedonia and Archaea. Remember, at this point in time, the churches don't all have a copy of the New Testament. They don't have a Bible. They hadn't set out a strategy of this is what we're going to do to influence others. But there is something about passionate followers of Jesus Christ that is attractive. You know, when you're in, you get to know someone who has a really close relationship with Jesus and it really inspires you, you want to be like that? That is what has naturally come out of these changes that's happened amongst the Thessalonians. They haven't planned to reach the Macedonians, the but they have looked at the church in Thessalonica and say, this is what it looks like to follow Christ. I want to live like that. The word has gone out for them, spreading far and wide, it says. Whether that's an intentional missionary effort, an evangelistic event, or just simply the way the word has gone around, the word has spread of how these people have been so dramatically transformed by the gospel. Paul says, I don't need to talk you guys up. Everyone else is doing it for us. Not even, even the people who don't know Jesus are talking about you, about what has happened amongst you. Fifth, they've turned from idols to the true and living God. Now this powerful turnaround that everyone's talking about has a cause. They once lived in Macedonia amongst the fellow Greeks, worshipping their idols who are dead, inanimate objects, unable to do anything. And as they have turned from those things that are doing nothing to the true and living God, this is the means by which this transformation has taken place. 
And lastly, they are expectantly awaiting Jesus' return. Throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, the return of Christ is a prominent theme which comes up time and time again. Not only have they been transformed by what Jesus has done in his first coming, they are longing, they are awaiting Jesus' return to bring about the fulfilment of what has begun within their midst. It's like Paul says to the Philippians in 3.20, you are citizens of heaven, eagerly awaiting a saviour from there. Because when Jesus returns, he will judge the living and the dead. There will be the eternal division of all people, either those who have trusted in Jesus to eternal life with him or to eternal punishment to those who have rejected him as their king. The same gospel they received, that Jesus has borne the, the, the cost, the penalty for sinners, means that we can escape the wrath of God. As always, so what? What we see from Paul is this is a church that he gives thanks for. He gives thanks that these people, what the gospel was intended to produce in the life of the people who hear it, this is happening in the life of these people. They have responded to the gospel. They are living in light of the gospel. And they are hungry and they are eagerly awaiting the completion of their salvation as they see Jesus face to face when he comes. Yes, the claims of the gospel are great. But as you look at this church, you see some transformational evidence of the work and power of God in the life of his people. Those who opposed Paul made some pretty fair conclusions. They have indeed, the gospel has indeed turned the world upside down. These Christians have been so radically and attractively changed that people are talking about it and it's spread far and wide. How they've turned from the religions, the dead, worthless religions that surrounded them to the true and living God being the very means by which this thing that everyone's talking about has happened. They've even followed Jesus knowing that it was going to be a harder path to follow because they knew the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. They knew the surpassing worth of the gospel that says that your sin can be dealt with once for all. You can have a relationship with God. But if you're thinking, I don't think I know what Christianity is about, and that seems pretty extreme. I wouldn't do that. I would put it to you that you probably haven't fully yet understood the gospel. If you think it's not really something good enough that we're bring about that sort of change and commitment. These people aren't delusional. They're just people who have simply come to understand the goodness of the good news of the gospel. But I want to put it to you, it's a reminder of the powerful impact that Christians can have in the surrounds in which they live. Now we always think, oh, it's such a hostile world in which we live in. Guess what? Christianity was no more popular back then than it is now. It was very similar in that sense in terms of opposition. Yet as these people took seriously their relationship with God, they lived as God's people, people started talking. It was attractive. They unashamedly became people of the word. Both the written word and the scriptures and of the incarnate word of Jesus Christ. That was the thing that defined their identity. 
They were a people who knew the word. They'd come to know the word about Jesus Christ. They'd have come to know Jesus Christ. Not just information about, but to know him intimately. And it's come with, them with power and transformation. They've become known to be a people who live the word. In verse 7, 9 through to 10. How they're turning from their old ways. How they're changed ways in which they live to their new King Jesus. Everyone was talking about. And in verse 8 we see they were a people where the word came out. They were a people who proclaimed the word. The word that had changed them. The word that was good news for every single person ever born. Not only was this something that brought joy to Paul to see this in their church. It's something that we would delight to see in our own church. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the mission state of Eastgate Bible Church is this, that we would know the word, live the word, proclaim the word for the glory of the name. These are the things that would embody this church which Paul brought so much joy. We want to be a people who know the word, know the scriptures, know Jesus, the incarnate word, and not just in a surface kind of know a few things about. We want to be people who, who live the world, who actually, out of the joy and our love of following Christ, desire to walk in obedience and do the things that lays before us. And if we have any sense of a love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and those who don't know Christ, that we would be a people who by nature are compelled to take on our role to proclaim the word. All for the glory of the name of God. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that wherever Jesus and the gospel are faithfully received, there is change. We are not just a new creation in terms of our title or something we fill out on a census. We become a people who are born again the very presence of God's Holy Spirit living within us. We are children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are a royal priesthood. Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done amongst us already. But Lord, we have never reached the full extent for which you have planned and desired for us. Lord, we want to be a people who are constantly growing. As we are constantly growing and maturing in Christ, that we are thinking about not only encouraging those who know you, but Lord, that we'd have a deep-seated compassion and a heart for those who do, do not know, who have not heard what you have done to do with the problem of our sin. So Lord, as Paul begins to rejoice as these people have embraced the gospel, living by and proclaiming that gospel, that that might shape and be characteristic of us as a church also. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, while